being raised in the UK, royal events were a big deal, especially royal weddings. And none were so big a deal as the wedding between uh, Prince Charles and Lady Diana in 1981. It was, uh, you might call it, a, a fairy tale a wedding. The government called a national holiday on the day of the wedding. Everything was shut. Almost every neighborhood had a street party, and everyone had just a, a great spirit of, of joy and celebration and joining in the, the celebration of this wedding. Of course, most of us were watching it on television, and the, the t some of the television channels actually hired lip readers to try and figure out what Prince Charles and Lady Diana were saying to one another. Such was the interest in the tiniest details of that day. Well, in this psalm, we have a royal wedding, a far greater royal wedding than even the greatest royal wedding here on earth. It's celebrating the marriage, the wedding, the covenant between God and Israel initially. Throughout the Old Testament, the relationship between God and Israel is portrayed as a marriage with God, the bridegroom, and Israel, the bride. We see that in the Pentateuch, in the historical books, in the poetic books, a number of the Psalms, but especially in the Song of Solomon. But as the New Testament makes clear, that is step one of the fulfillment of this Psalm. Step two is the celebration of the marriage more specifically between Christ and the Christian. This Psalm is quoted in Hebrews 1 as being fulfilled in Jesus. And of course, Jesus Himself talks about Himself being the bridegroom and His people the bride. And so, as we, as we enter this psalm this morning, we want to enter it with a similar spirit to what happened in 1981. We want to enter it with a spirit of joy and celebration as we celebrate the love that Christ has for His people and His people have for Christ. And in this case, of course, we don't need lip readers to tell us what the bride or the bridegroom's words are to one another, because we have these words here in this psalm. In verses 1 through 9, we have the words of the bride to the bridegroom, the Christian to Christ. And in verses 10 to the end, we have the words of the bridegroom Christ to His bride, the Christian. So, let's enter this psalm looking for an answer to this question. What are the best words in the world? What are the best words in the world? If you can Think to yourself, you know, if, if I had the choice of any words to be said to me or said 
by me, what would these words be? I think most of us would probably come to a three-word sentence. I love you. Aren't they the, the greatest words in human experience? They're great words when we can say it to someone else, I love you. And they're even greater when someone says it to us, I love you. And we see these three words in this psalm. First of all, spoken by the bride to the bridegroom. She turns to him, and in many different ways, as we'll see, she says, I love you, Jesus. And then Jesus turns to his bride, the Christian, the one he's married to, and says, I love you. Let's see that in this psalm. First of all, we see Jesus' words, sorry, the words of the bride to Jesus, Jesus, I love you. The psalm begins with the bride, the Christian, describing the tumult in his heart or her heart. My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. That word overflow means something like a bubbling, boiling over. It's, it's a picture of something being so heated that it cannot be contained. It's, it's pouring over the edges, such as the heat of this passion, this experience. I address, she says, my verses to the king. And my tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. And the words here mean the words are flowing thick and fast. You know, sometimes writers speak of sitting down and they've got writer's block. Authors cramp. They, they can't even put a word on the page. Not the case here. My words, she says, are like the, the words of somebody that can't write fast enough, can't keep up with what I want to say. Children, I don't know if you had this experience of sometimes you've seen something that is just so amazing, you, you rush into the house, and you start trying to tell your parents something, and you're so excited that your words are tumbling over one another. You, you, you can't get the words out fast enough, and they're kind of getting mixed up, and your parents aren't quite understanding your excitement, and they'll say, hey, slow down. And that's the picture we have here. It's of a little child's excitement and enthusiasm and uncontainable passion. And it's all about the king. So, what, is, what does she say? What does the bride say to the bridegroom? What is it about this person that gets her soul excited, so enthused? Well, she first of all says, you are so 
handsome. Verse 2, you are the most handsome of the sons of men. Now, this is not the, the typical beauty we think of in this world, like a, a model's beauty. Because when the Christian thinks of Christ, it's not that we admire His hair, His build, His bone structure. That's a merely physical love, and these physical characteristics are actually not really described in the Bible. What, what the Christian finds handsome, beautiful, attractive about Christ is when he was at his most ugly. We think of that head crowned with thorns and bleeding. We think of these cheeks punched, bruised, and battered. We think of that tongue parched like a desert. We think of these ears that suffered such blasphemies poured into it. We think of his back slashed with a whip embedded with bones. We think of his hands nailed to the cross his feet also. We think of Him in agony, in great pain. We think of Him eventually dead, limp, lifeless on the cross. How can anyone find that beautiful? We find it beautiful, don't we, because this is our salvation. Nothing less than this kind of pain and suffering and agony and ugliness would have sufficed as He bore in His body what each one of us deserved. That is why we turn to Jesus and say, you are so handsome. You are so beautiful. I love your loveliness. And then the bride says, I love your grace. You are so gracious. You are so kind. Verse 2 again, grace is poured upon your lips. And isn't it interesting that she goes from celebrating his beauty to grace? If his suffering and death are his physical beauty to the Christian, then his grace is very much part of his spiritual beauty, isn't it? What is grace? We, we use the term a lot, don't we? What is grace? Well, maybe we can describe it like this. It's somebody dealing with us in the opposite way to what we deserve. So, if we've offended somebody and we deserve a punishment, mercy 
is that person not punishing us? But grace is something more. Grace isn't just someone not punishing us. It's more opposite. It's someone actually dealing with us in the opposite way to what we deserve. In other words, instead of punishing us, we are blessed with gifts and reward and everything we could want. That's grace. And you may say, well, that's not fair. (laughs) Thankfully, it's not fair because I don't want fairness. Do you? I don't want justice. I want grace, and I want more than mercy. I want the opposite of what I deserve, not a neutral. Maybe we can get across the the wonder of grace like this. You think of what's going on with Michigan football just now, and their sign-stealing allegations, right? At the moment, Michigan football are being punished. Mercy would be the punishment goes away. Grace would be they'd awarded the college football championship without playing. Now, unless you're a Michigan fan, you say, that's offensive. That's not fair. That is, that's hideous. That's how we're saved. We're saved by God dealing with us in the opposite way to what we deserve. And that's why the bride looks at the bridegroom, the Christian looks at Christ and says, your grace is so, so beautiful. Especially the grace in His words. You read the New Testament, you see grace pouring out of His lips. And then she says, you are so blessed. Verse 2, therefore God has blessed you forever. No one was more blessed than Jesus. Blessed because of the work He did. Blessed with a great reward for His suffering and dying. Raised, not just from the dead, not just to earth, not just to heaven, but to the highest throne in heaven. So blessed. We love to see Jesus as the blessed man, don't we? The happy man. And then she celebrates his braveness. You are so brave, she says, in verses 3 to 5, as she looks at his military might, and she mentions his sword, his riding out in a chariot, his awesome deeds of war, his sharp arrows, entering the heart of his enemies and bringing them down to his feet. Yes, Christ, in the one hand, was so weak, suffering, dying. But on the other hand, by faith, we also see him triumphing in the cross, triumphing over sin, triumphing over the devil, triumphing over hell. We see him bringing down his enemies, riding in a chariot, the chariot even of the cross. We see his courage, don't we? We see his bravery as he took on the worst enemies in all the world, in all the universe. You think Hamas is bad. 
Try and imagine the devil. You think October 7 was bad. You imagine hell forever. And that's what he took. And that's what he beat and conquered. And so we say we love your bravery. And, and we love his divinity. Look at verse 6. Your throne, O God. See, he's addressed as God. That's what the writer to the Hebrews focuses on when he says, this psalm is fulfilled in Christ, when especially it says, your throne, O God. Yes, this is deity. It wasn't just man, he was God. She loves his holiness. Look at verse 7. You've loved righteousness and hated wickedness. And, and you might think this is a bit jarring, is it not? After celebrating all that beauty, and then you come to holiness? We don't really associate holiness, do we, with something beautiful? And yet, here we're told that is one of the most beautiful things in all the world. And that was what was so beautiful about Jesus. He walked this whole earth, loving righteousness perfectly, hating unrighteousness perfectly. And, and you, He wouldn't have been perfect if He only loved righteousness. An equal part of that perfection was his hatred of wickedness. And the next thing she says is, you are so happy. Again, it's a jar maybe to some of us, a clash. You're so holy, you're so happy. Holiness and happiness. But look at this passage. It says, you've loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your fellows. Because of His perfect holiness, He had a perfect happiness, a perfect inner joy, even in the midst of His great pain and sorrow. And that's why she closes with, you are so stunning. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From ivory palaces, stringed instruments made, make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. She sees this royal king, this great savior, and she's just over, all her senses are just overcome. Her smell, her sight, her hearing, her touch, her taste, everything is just bussing for her. So she looks at him, or Christian, you look at Jesus, don't you, and say, I love you. Why not, why not say it in your heart this morning as we think about all he is to us? Say in your heart, I love you. I love you. I love you. I love you. I, you're so handsome. I love you. You're so beautiful. I love you. You're so kind. I love you. You're so holy, I love you. You're so happy, I love you. You're so blessed, I love you. You're so brave, I love you. You're so stunning, I love you. And, and surely as we say that, there's a joy rising in our heart. As this psalm is suffused with that spirit, let our hearts also be. Loving leads to laughing. Loving is the most joyful experience in the world. 
So that's, that's what we say to Jesus. But what is, does Jesus say anything back to us? I remember hearing of a man who um, his wife would always say, I love you to him. And he, he would rarely have ever said it back to her. And one day uh, she said it to him, honey, I love you. And nothing came back. And she said, look, would you just say it? Would you just say I love you? And he's like, well, why, why would I need to say that? You know I love you. He said, but, but would you just say it? He said, okay, I'll say it. I love you. Now, don't ask me again. <laughs> if I change my mind, I'll let you know. That, that's weird, isn't it? That's, that's not normal love, because usually when someone says to us, I love you, the automatic, the instinctive reply is, I love you too. And that's what we get here in this psalm as Jesus hears the Christian's love song to him. He replies, Jesus says, I love you. I love you. I love you too. I love you too. And he's not ashamed to say it. He's not hesitant. He's not, look, just assume that and if I change my mind, I'll let you know. No, he loves to tell us, I love you. And you can see it here, and, and you get a hint of it at the end of verse 9 as the bride is looking at this king. She says, at your right hand stands the queen in gold of Ophir. She sees herself there. And the whole conversation turns, and he speaks to her and says, Hear, O daughter, consider, incline your ear. She's saying, I really want you to get this. I really want you to hear me. I want you to, to really believe these words. Listen to nothing else. Don't listen to your heart. Don't listen to the devil. Don't listen to providence. Listen to me as I speak to you in my word. And the first thing he says to her is, you are so mine. He rejoices in her being his. Look at verse 10. Forget your people and your father's house. This is what happens in marriage, isn't it? There's a leaving, our natural family, and there's a cleaving to a new family. And ownership, as it were, passes. The husband owns the wife, and the wife now owns the husband. They belong to one another in a covenant. And here, the king is really rejoicing because he's seen the Christians separate, not from natural family, but from their spiritual family, from their spiritual darkness, their sin, their evil, their temptation, their way of life, their lack of love for him. And he sees her leaving that all behind and cleaving to him and he loves that. He says, I just love your commitment to me. I love that you're so mine, that, that you belong to me and I belong to you. And then he says, you are so desirable. Where do we see that? Well, the very next words. And the king will desire your beauty. It's, if you want some words to take away with you and think on this week, take these. The king desires your beauty, Christian. He looks at you. He looks at all he's done for you and done in you. He sees the beauty he has put upon you. 
And he says, I want you. I desire you. I long for you. You are so desirable. And then he says, you're so influential. Verse 12 talks about heathen nations coming with gifts and riches. And it's really speaking of the gospel going out to the ends of the earth and the peoples of the ends of the earth joining with this bride in her commitment to this king. Influence, causing others to love this king as well, the most unlikely. And then he says, you're glorious. You are so glorious. Thir verse 13, all glorious is the princess in her chamber with robes interwoven with gold. She looks, he looks at you and says, glorious. Just a beautiful sight, an awesome sight. That's what glory means. It's a weight that causes an awe in the heart, in the soul. And this is how Jesus looks at the Christian. He says, I'm in awe. It's so amazing to me. You're glorious. You're so beautiful. Look at the description in verse 14. In many colored robes, she is led to the king with her virgin companions following behind her with joy and gladness. They're led along as they enter the palace of the king. You hear, you feel, you sense the celebration here as he admires her, as she comes to him. He just sees beauty everywhere, the beauty that he's put upon her, his righteousness, his, his work of salvation. And he just, he just loves to see that, and he loves to see others celebrate it. As we gather around the communion table this morning, we celebrate what he's done for us, but we, we also celebrate what he's done for everyone else who is his people. And then he speaks of fruitfulness. Verse 16, and place of your fathers shall be your sons, and I'll make them princes in all the earth. He's talking here about the fruit that comes from this marriage. As other people are brought to life and brought into this love, can you hear it? Can you believe it? As he looks at you, believer, this morning, he says, I love you. I love you. Does that not make you laugh? Christ's love should lead to laughter, to joy, to happiness. So, what are the best words in the world? We've heard them, haven't we? I love you. And therefore, get more love from Jesus to give more love to Jesus. Jesus himself said, you love me because I first loved you. He doesn't love us in response to our love. No, we love him in response to his love. And therefore, get love from Jesus through the Word, through the sacrament, in order to give more love to Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Our lovely Lord and Savior, we are not ashamed to say, I love you. 
And we don't want to stop saying it. And we want you, Lord, to say it to us again today, especially through the sacrament. May we, may we truly, as we eat and drink these love symbols, these remembrances of your love, may we truly taste, I love you. In Jesus' name, amen.